This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Families across the state and country struggle every day with dementia. Dad could kind of compensate and and help her and and answer the questions time and time again. And then when he slipped, he went much faster. A new piece of national legislation could make things a bit easier if it passes Congress. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. The first meeting of the West Virginia First Foundation took place Monday morning in Charleston. Emily Rice has more. Through settlements from various lawsuits with opioid manufacturers and distributors, West Virginia stands to gain about $1 billion over the next 10 to 15 years to be spent on recovery and prevention programs. To ensure the money is used correctly, the West Virginia legislature created the West Virginia First Foundation to distribute those settlement funds. The organization held its first meeting on Monday, and Attorney General Patrick Morrissey reminded the board how the money can be spent. Anything that is related to the drug epidemic would be permissible, whether it's education, prevention, treatment, law enforcement, or other matters. The board elected its chair, Matt Harvey, Vice Chair, Dr. Matthew Christensen, Treasurer, Jeff Sandy, and Secretary, Dora Stutler. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. J.C. Lasik's latest play about a West Virginia family in the 1980s as they struggle with the ups and downs of the economy at the time, the coal strikes. It is showing through November 12th at the Raleigh Theater in Beckley. The native West Virginian and playwright sat down with Brianna Heaney to talk about the show. Talk to me about this play and give our listeners a short preview if you can. So this is my third a full-length play um, that's been produced here in West Virginia. My previous two was uh, was Abomination on Bolt Mountain and Frack the Musical. And so this new play is kind of a lighthearted comedy. Um, it's set in the 80s, kind of in the period where uh, West Virginia still voted staunchly pretty much as Democrats. And so it's it's not a political play, but it is kind of playing in that sandbox of a bit of a different reality that most people would see the state as today. The story follows uh, the Callahan family as they kind of struggle with the ups and downs of the economy at the time, uh, the coal strikes. As a structure, you know, it's kind of a kind of traditional uh, family drama, but the majority of the story takes place in their household and. And like every time they watch their TV, the audience can see what's on the TV. It's kind of hovering above the stage facing the audience. One thing I wanted to do with this is not fabricate some like wild drama that had to unfold uh, on stage. Instead, I wanted to just kind of explore just what day-to-day life is like with these people and um, kind of just show people that like, you know, that there doesn't need to be some sort of grandiose plot developments for the stories. It sounds like you're putting the characters or the people above the plot or the narrative. Sure, yeah. It's, you know, it's like there's no real one, what you would call a protagonist. Each character's arc, like each person gets their chance to shine throughout the story. You know, again, like I was saying, there's nothing grandiose that happens. It's very much kind of like slice of life. A lot of times in West Virginia, there is this very strong narrative. And I noticed in your play that you 
the narrative is not that important. It really comes down to the people. Was that style of writing at all a comment on West Virginia and the way people view West Virginia? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, definitely in a way, people in West Virginia, whenever they're ever portrayed until like film or TV, it's rarely in a good light, you know. And so it was important to me that, you know, for the good or bad, that the people that come to see this, that they feel seen in their lives. And but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've lived all over the world. And I've never been a place where where people just like the like the narrative of being a West Virginian is worn on people's I mean, just like a shield around here. I, I've never been any place like that, that people it's really beautiful, but it's a it's a rare thing to have people just have so much pride. And so that's why um, that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to call it a West Virginia story is just to be like. This is like this is just what this is, you know. It's it's reflective of the beauty and the details, or like or like the devil and the details of just what makes the simple things of life here just really special. What inspired you to write this story? This was a product of the pandemic, you know. It was like in the like real peak of the pandemic, not knowing what the future was going to hold. Like I realized that I, you know, this was kind of like my, um, both like, both like a love letter to, um, uh, West Virginia and my family. And, you know, you know, like, as I was, you know, saying, like, like I was coming back to spend time with them and I thought like, what better way to kind of, you know, kind of like be able to share this thing with our whole community. Okay, well, it was so nice talking to you. I can't wait to see this play. (laughs) Thank you. That was J.C. Lasik speaking with Brianna Heaney about the new play, A West Virginia Story, now being performed at the Raleigh Theater through November 12th. You can read the full interview on our website at wvpublic.org. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 7.50. Scattered light rain this morning with variable cloudiness today. High temperatures in the 60s and 70s. Partly cloudy overnight with lows in the 50s and 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s and 70s. Support for WVPB is provided by HD Media. Presenting digital and print subscriptions for the Charleston Gazette Mail and Herald Dispatch. Information at hdmediallc.com. Millions of families nationwide find themselves caring for loved ones in their own family. That includes stress and confusion, especially when it comes to dealing with parents' finances and the services that are available to them. 
Senator Shelley Moore Capito experienced those issues as she provided care for her own parents. Realizing how big of an issue it is, she recently introduced legislation into the U.S. Senate to help alleviate burdens on caregivers. For his series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, News Director Eric Douglas discussed the situation and the pending legislation with Capito. Just for for context sake, uh, you and I share, we've both cared for our parents, let me say it that way. Uh, My mom's still with me, but she's now in a memory care unit in a a facility here in Charleston. And uh, well, I mean, let's just talk about that that experience for just a second, just for for context. So you cared for both of your parents, right? But I I believe I read that it was your mother first and then, then your father began to decline, or do I have that backwards? That uh, right, my mother uh, really had a, a longer slope into uh, into full out dementia. She uh, became very isolated, uh, uh, worried about losing her mind, and and you know it was sad to watch. But you know, Dad could kind of compensate and and help her and and answer the questions time and time again. And then when he slipped, uh, it, he went much faster. Uh, in terms of not really uh, losing a lot of decline in terms towards dementia, and that was in 2010. And then it began a long slog for me and my brother and sister of four years of caring for them, having them being cared for, and trying to figure all of this out. Well, I guess that's why I asked the question, because your father was the the caregiver for your mother for a while. Um, yes. and, and did all of those things that we're discussing. And then when, when he began to decline, then suddenly, yeah, then, then suddenly it fell to the next generation, to, to our generation, to step up and to, uh, to, to provide that care. Yeah, and I think it's challenging. It was challenging for us in that none of the three of us lived right there. Right. And, and so maybe, you know, you, you can always go back and look, and I'm sure you've done this yourself, but, you know, could I have addressed this earlier, sooner, or better if I'd been right there and saw it? But you know, you're doing the best you can, and I think that's what caregivers all across this nation are doing. I, I, I'll be honest with you when I when I see information about newly introduced legislation, I generally don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Mm-hmm. Just I know how long it takes, how many steps it takes to to, right. be, to become finished legislation. But right. To to alleviate the care or the burden on caregivers, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think what I realized from my own personal experience, and then once I became sort of known as somebody who uh, has lived this experience and is very interested in, you know, trying to figure out how to care for particularly elderly parents, I realized that, you know, going through all the insurance, making, you know, every time they admitted to the hospital, you have to get another document signed, the same document you signed every time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why can't the x-rays... Uh, you know, be or the testing be transmitted from one hospital to the next because they're you know sometimes not in the same place, and and so you have the burden of trying to figure out how to care best for your parents, but then all of the hurdles that you have to jump through, whether it's for insurance purposes or HIPAA or uh, any kind of a uh, you know the refrigerator breaks down, all of these things just come come cascading down. And you end up with a lot of uh, difficulties in terms of trying to figure out procedures, forms, communications, 
eligibility, whether you're talking about Medicare or Social Security. And so those things, I think, we could make it easier on caregivers who are trying to face this to make it more streamlined or at least have these agencies look at how they could streamline their processes to make it easier. There's no clearinghouse. There's no central, you know, who do I go to to find out right. what to, how to care for my mom? Um, right. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. It was a labor of love for me, but it, it was extremely time-consuming and, and emotionally draining. And then, you know, you're trying to do your life at the same time. So it happened to me. Uh, my parents actually got very, very ill the, the year that, um, 2014, which was the year I was running for my first Senate race. Uh, in September of 2014, when my campaign obviously was almost over by the time in November, my mother died. And I remember a campaign meeting that I had like the day before she died, and I just looked at my campaign team and I just said, I can't do all this. My mother is dying. I had no idea. Uh, I guess nationwide, there's 53 million family caregivers, but even in West Virginia, we're looking at a quarter of a million people I mean, in a state in a state with 1.8 million people, that's kind of astounding. That's you know, right. um, what one in eight, one in seven people in the state yeah. is is a family caregiver. You know, it's totally bipartisan because you know nobody sure. know you, this has no barriers in terms of uh, how it hits people in terms of their politics, obviously. But and uh, so you know, it's one of the issues that we can we can work on together. And you know, not that I hadn't seen it in other families, but when it hits you yourself, it really um, you you really do understand what what what's going on. And and so that's that's why I've sort of taken this on as one of my causes that I think we could make a difference on. That was U.S. Senator Shelley Moore Capito speaking with Eric Douglas about the issues family caregivers face. To read a longer version of this interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yowie. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. Mm-hmm.